Hello, everyone. We wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about the 23rd World Petroleum Congress that is happening really soon here in Houston, Texas, on December 5th to the 9th. It's returning to the U.S. for the first time in over 30 years and bringing amazing guest speakers. It's a great place to network with like-minded individuals. You really don't want to miss this one. To find out more information, please visit their website and make sure to register at www.23wpchouston.com. See you guys there. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast. We are here today at the Doug Permian Conference in Fort Worth, and we're super excited because we get to interview one of the amazing guests who just had us talk, and he is the CEO of Admiral Permian Resources out in West Texas, and we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. You know, it was pretty funny because right when we first started, we were actually asking you, making sure we pronounced the, you know, Admiral correctly. And you gave us a really interesting story on one of the times when you were, I guess, trying to get yeah, investors. We were, yeah, at, yeah. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, we were raising money and it was a conference call. And so the facilitator of the call had no idea about oil and gas or anything. They were just facilitating all. So she introduced us as Admiral Permania. <laughs> and my team that was sitting around this table with other investors and then on the call, we were just kind of like, uh, what do we do? What do we do? How do we, we just let it lie. And yeah. It went right on. So <laughs> I'm sure now pretty much everybody knows what the Permian is from people who aren't in the industry to investors. And I mean, it's, you know, it's blown up, especially yeah. with unconventional. So I'm sure today, if that happened, everybody would be like, Oh, definitely. Hello. That's the Permian. Yeah. Yeah. This was several years ago. <laughs> yeah. So they were like, that's the Permian. But like Maciel said, we're super excited to have you on. Really want Thank to understand you. your story, where you're from. So could you kind of give us a background? on what life was like growing up as Mm, Denzel? Yeah. I grew up in, uh, for the most part, my dad was in the oil and gas business. He was a drilling engineer. And uh, I grew up in Midland, for the most part, a couple of trips around. But for the most part, went lived in Midland, grew up there, had great family life, and ended up going to Lee High School in in Midland, Texas, and graduated and met my my future wife as a high school sweetheart. So that was, you know... Midland was a good place, and so ended up several years later, as I went in the oil and gas business, moved back there. So, so did you think that's what you wanted to do absolutely because your dad not. was part of it? No, okay, absolutely okay. not. Oh, a lot of people we've had on, if their parents were in oil and gas, were like, that is a horrible cyclical business. I see how much they suffer through downturns. Yeah. That is not the life that I want. And they wanted to be as far away as possible. That's what Midland. I wanted, yeah. So what happened? Well, <laughs> and it was even worse. My dad actually started his own business, and so for... Two or three years through junior high school and going into high school, it was pretty lean. Mm. And so I saw that part of it, but he was an entrepreneur and that's what he wanted to do. And then he actually put me to work when I was in eighth grade. Every summer for like four summers, I worked in a pipe yard in Monahans, Texas. Oh, wow. That's hard labor. (laughs) Oh, it was very hard labor. Rolling pipe, cleaning pipe, doping pipe. You know, it was 105 degree weather. And so... By the time I got out of high school, I knew I didn't want to go back and be in the oil and gas business. Yeah. So, And so when you went into college, were you thinking that you wanted to be an engineering background or did you want to just totally get out of it? Where did you end up going no, to No, I knew I wanted to do engineering, so I got a degree in mechanical engineering. Okay. And because there's so many it's places. Broad. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very broad, as you guys know. And so I got a, 
opportunity near the end of college when I started interviewing for jobs to have kind of pick of whatever I wanted to do. And it turned out, you know, some of the best opportunities were still in oil and gas. Quite frankly, they were paying about 20% more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was married as I finished college. So, you know, and we were thinking about starting a family. And so it was money was important, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I did have a lot of familiarity with it and I knew that it was, a, it was a good career path. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of naturally levitated back into it. So, so what was your first job right outside of school? I went to work for Arcoil and Gas and I was a operations engineer for them in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Spent a year there on a training program they did and then spent another two years in Denver in the Rockies working mostly operations and reservoir and then in 1984 or 5, I can't remember which, but I got moved to Midland. So you went back to Midland. Was your, home st- was your family still in Midland at the they time? They were. They okay. were. So did, your, did you have kids at the time when you were moving around, and did, did everybody go with you to Oklahoma, to yeah, Denver? Yeah. Well, when we first moved away from college, Kathy was pregnant, and so we ended up having our first baby in Tulsa and moved to Denver and stayed there a couple of years. And then she was about eight months pregnant with our second son. Mm. And we got transferred very abruptly. It was over almost overnight till they needed me there in just a few weeks. So we moved with an eight month pregnant wife to Midland. So I can only imagine. So how, how did that go family wise? Like, was it a difficult conversation or was it always open that if you move, your wife was okay with y'all moving around? Cause we've had other people come on and say like, you know, it was difficult to <clears throat> family life balance. Like, how did y'all? Yeah, well, that? I'm very blessed that I have a wife that's she's always supportive wherever I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and so she was like, "If that's the best career move, let's go do it." And mm-hmm. that's awesome. let's just attack the day. And that's you know, so we were and we were blessed. She had chosen to stay home, mm-hmm. and so you know, we were single income, and so she was like, and, and of course, going back to Midland for her was. It was uh, good, right? It was family. good. We were a little trepidatious about it, to be honest with you, because we were not sure, you know, living that close to our parents again. Her parents lived there, too, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and obviously. and But it turned out to be great. And we raised our kids around their grandparents. And Midland mm-hmm. just afforded us a, a great lifestyle and great career. And so, you know. So when you went back to Midland, what was your role then? And then how did you end up where you're at today? Like, was there a process of a few different companies that you went to? and? How did that transition? Yeah, how much time do you have? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I went. I got recruited to come back to Midland to kind of be a lead engineer over, at that time, ARCO was developing a lot of CO2 projects, had a, had a non-op and operations in CO2 floods. So I was recruited to go back there and head up a lot of the development on the operated stuff that we were doing. So I Went back as a lead engineer over that project, those set of projects, which is a real high-profile deal. Mm-hmm. Worked there for doing that for several years, and then it was a great job. It had probably had a lot of upward mobility, but I was, you know, what I what I'd kind of gotten into was really just being a, I won't call it a bean counter, but I was doing a lot of the project management, mm-hmm. reporting of costs and everything. And at that time, a lot of those CO2 projects had been modeled based on a certain amount of throughput, mm-hmm. and they weren't going to meet expectations. And so mm-hmm. we were kind of catching a lot of flack for why oil research results. Well, I hadn't had anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. So I got an opportunity, and I kind of, based on where my dad was at, I'd kind of grown up in an entrepreneurial family. So 
At that point in time, I got an opportunity to go to work for a small independent there in Midland. And this would have been about 1994, excuse me, about 1987. I went to work for him, ran all of his engineering, did everything. It was kind of a one-stop shop, and we were a small outfit, but actually got a little bitty participation in the business. Mm -hmm. I was hooked after that as far as, you know, being entrepreneur and everything small yeah and exactly everything i did was directly impacted you know and yeah I well, have, what was I the biggest difference between working in the small independent and kind of having more say i guess because you were he obviously brought you on to be a big part of that yeah versus working under like a corporation that's like a little bit larger you know it i think initially there was a fear that you know this is if this goes it's a lot away more responsibility it's there's more responsibility i didn't mind that so much it was just when you're going to work for a small business then there's more risk career-wise mm-hmm. you know that business may not make it or yeah. whatever you know you're pretty pretty assured that you know arco was going to be around forever mm-hmm. and it was going to be a great career so that there was trepidation about that i guess a little bit but you know as it turned out years later within Six or seven years later, Arco was gone and been sold off in pieces, and everybody had to go do other places. Oh, wow. And so you made the right choice. Well, it was right for me. Yeah. Uh, a lot of my friends stayed, and, you know, Dave Stover was the CEO at Noble, just retired. And, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot, I got a lot of friends. Tony Best ended up being CEO at SM. And, oh, wow. So a lot so, of CEOs came out. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was a lot of guys that we worked with that were, you know, very, very successful. So, you know, they just it was just a different path for me. But mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was more in control. So as you were going through your career, even at a young age, do you remember ever thinking, I want to be CEO one day? Did you have those aspirations of, I want to be successful? Was that enrooted in you? Or do you think life just happened and you ended up CEO? You know, I don't really ever remember having any thoughts of, you know, a title. In fact, I'll be real honest with you, the only reason we have titles at Admirals is because our our partners like that. They like to know, you know, and so... We're, we're a pretty flat organization. We don't, I don't, I just don't get into titles that much. So that wasn't the real thing. The real thing was, what am I going to be doing? Is it going to be challenging? And is there, is there the appropriate reward for the effort put in? And, and a whole lot of that too is, is really who do you get to work with? Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was what motivated me. And so every move I pretty much made over the years has been because of, the, the opportunity set and the people I would get to work with. Mm-hmm. And like Do you think that there was somewhere in along your career path that you met like a group of individuals that helped you succeed to where you are today? Because what we've heard from a lot of CEOs is it's like the people around you that are like advocating for you mm-hmm. or the leaders around you. Do you feel like that's kind of the same for you? Yeah, I had that at Arco. I just chose a different path. It wasn't because I didn't have that. I actually had a lot of champions there, and they taught me a lot. In fact, some of those guys are still some of my best friends. Mm-hmm. A couple of them live in Midland, and uh, we've reunited as we migrated back to Midland. But, yeah, I've been very blessed through the years. I mean, when I left and went to work for the small independent, the guy that I worked for there was probably 25 years my senior. Mm-hmm. And it was just a fantastic guy. Taught me a lot about how to handle failure. Drill, mm-hmm. You know, this is back in the days when you drill dry holes. You know, he taught me how, he, I mean, he'd just go right back to work and learned a lot from that. Great guy, real supportive. And so through the years, I've been really, really fortunate to work. Mm-hmm. You know, in the mid-2000s, I'd been on my own buying royalties and minerals and doing a lot of things on my own because I like just working for myself. Mm-hmm. And in 2006, I guess it was, a couple of friends of mine approached me about going to work with Reliance Energy. And Reliance was a very, very small little 
independent oil company. The guy who's the owner there, I didn't know him at all, but met him, fantastic guy, just unbelievable guy. And we very quickly, within a meeting and a half, decided we wanted to work together. Mm -hmm. And my wife asked me, because I'd been on my own for years, she asked me if I thought I could go back to work for somebody. Yeah. Are you sure you want a boss? Yeah, you, you sure are you want a boss, boss again yeah. when you've yeah. been the boss? And, and I'd been real successful doing a lot of other things. And, and I said, yeah, I think I can. And that was a 10-year run that was – Wow. Was, so how long did you do your – kind of your individual mm-hmm. – About, 10, for years. about okay, 10 years. About 10 years. 10 years. And then you did 10 years at Reliance Energy. That's right. Were That's they right. an operator as well or what they, – They were, but they were small. I think there were six people there when I got there. And so they had – Gary had developed some production in – Arkansas gas production and had a little bit of production in Texas and mm-hmm. it was just a real small shop and but they had just taken and were in the process of taking on some, some a lot of leases in the Midland Basin. Now this is before anybody could spell Wolfberry. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was kind of right timing and I liked the guy the two guys that asked me were on and they were friends of mine from church and so anyway it just turned out just to be made. a great and just mm-hmm. turned into we ended up over the next ten years developing. Two really nice size midstream companies we divested. We ended up developing those original assets into multi-billion dollar assets that we divested. And, wow. and it just turned into a major success story for all of us. It was just a lucky. You, you mentioned something about failure. And I think a lot of people in their career, they run into failure and then that either makes them move up because they surpass it, they become above it, or it can also bring you back down. So what kind of advice would you give for those that might be in that, especially we've been through another downturn, COVID, you know, made it very difficult. Like what have you learned through your career and the failures that you faced? Oh, well, there's been more than one. Yeah. 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 You know, I guess the the main thing is I read a lot and, and that's influenced a lot of my attitudes about life and the one thing that has always stuck with me is just you have to be doggedly persistent. Mm. And if you're going to let failure stop you, then you really didn't have much desire for it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to create in yourself a desire to succeed and know going, you got to go, you got to start. Everything's exciting when you start it, but you got to know going in, there's going to be failures. There's going to be deterrence. There's going to be things that don't go right. And we certainly have all seen that in the last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the last, I call 2020 the last, the lost year. You know? Mm-hmm. So, for real. Yeah. You know, and I can remember even as late as, you know, this past summer thinking, gosh, man, this is just really hard. Mm-hmm. And this is not fun. Mm-hmm. And I'm a person, I like to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't fun for our team. And it wasn't fun for investors. It wasn't fun for anybody. And, but, you know, you, the one thing I guess, Jamie, the, the tell you, what I'll tell you is you just got to get up in the morning and go do it again mm-hmm. and keep working mm-hmm. and keep doing what you can control. That's the other thing that we focused a lot on in 2020 is we're going to focus totally on what we can control. Mm-hmm. And that's just perform and everything else will probably work out. Mm-hmm. We can't guarantee anything, mm-hmm. but that's, we're going to do what we can control and, and persevere through it. So. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technique FMC. Marcel, you know what I really appreciate about Technique FMC being one of our sponsors is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast, as many of you know, was to move the industry forward and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. This is important, you know, especially to our generation. 
Totally agree with you, Jamie. But beyond the DNI, they're also big into technology. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. They have four main priorities, energy transition, emerging materials, digital, and industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like SubC 2.0, iProduction, Gemini ROV system, and iComplete, go to TechniqueFMC.com. So with such a long career in oil and gas and how cyclical it is, you've obviously been through probably several downturns. Um, too many. Yeah, too many to count. What is one thing that you, because we're going to see another one at oh, some absolutely. point. You know, yeah. we all need to be just aware, understand and be aware that it's coming. What are some things that you've learned through some of the biggest downturns, especially like the one we went through last year where we all saw oil barrel at negative 20 and yeah. it was very, very scary, I would say, compared to maybe all the other ones that I've been through the last two. What are some tips or even that you can give to anybody going through those downturns who get laid off, who want to leave the industry, mm-hmm. or even leaders like yourself who are running a whole business and you had to show up for your people every day. Yeah. How, that must have been very difficult. Well, that was very difficult, yeah. Well, the one thing I'll tell you is before it turns down, save your money. Yes. Yeah, put some money away. That will take a lot of stress out of when things turn down. And be prepared because, as you said, it's, it's going. It's coming. Yep. Yeah. We don't know when. And it seems like these cycles have kind of gotten compressed over the last 10, 15 years, and they're closer together. And so it's just more erratic the way the, the industry behaves. But I think for, for me, I think, you know, you just have to be prepared, know it's coming, and then when it actually comes, then you have to say, you know, if you're, if you're unfortunate to be in a position where you're laid off, then, then you just have to, like I said before, you get up every day and you don't quit and mm-hmm. you keep working at it. And it could be several months before something comes back. But I will say this about the industry. And I understand because I've seen it so many times, we lose so many good people mm-hmm. when things turn down. Yeah. It's so unfortunate because in the long term, it's such a great industry. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's probably as high a paying industry as we could have out there. Mm-hmm. Not that money's everything. But there's so many good people in it, and the opportunities will abound. If you hang around, mm-hmm. just hang around and be there when it picks back up, then the, the rewards it's will be there. And, but you're right. The hardest part for those of us who were able to hang on to our situation and able to stay employed, you know, and, and we've got leaders throughout our company that, you know, we would sit and talk alone a lot about the fact that morale's critical. Mm-hmm. And it was partic- this was a particularly problematic period just because for some parts of that it depends on the company but for us for a couple of months there we weren't together yeah you know but we were doing happy hour zoom calls on thursday afternoons at four yeah. and everybody drive just grab a cocktail that, yeah just to keep yeah, exactly. we were doing all kinds of crazy things we were having you know party i'm not parties but games where we'd be betting on you know mm-hmm. what the lowest rig count would be in the yeah. permeated <laughs> who would win that and what day would that we were doing Stuff that, quite frankly, I didn't create, but some of our other leaders said we got to do something to Make keep something everybody. Make fun together. out of this, yeah, yeah. yeah, situation. And you know, one of the things that came to me and said, "Look, oil just hit thirty-seven minus thirty-seven dollars yesterday. We got to get the team together." So we were pulling together people in Zoom calls. You know, one thing in leadership, you just have to be honest with people. 
Mm-hmm. And when you don't know the answer, you just tell them you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But we just got to get and do the same thing tomorrow that we did today, and sooner or later it'll turn out okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a little hard because you don't really necessarily know it's going to turn out okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, you got to you got to encourage. You don't want to BS people, but you got to be yeah. to a point where they, they've got to believe in something. They have to still something. trust you and feel that's like. Right. You know, you show up with, even though it's hard with a little smile on your face and yep. you got to give them hope. It's attitude. It mm-hmm. is. You got to keep everybody's attitude up. And that's, that's hard to do. Especially, especially yeah. Especially since none of us were together. I mean, this is like the first in-person conference we've been to. So yeah. people are finally, you know, coming out of the house. I think that was very difficult too, as people got very used to working in the house. And so then now when they used to go out with vendors or other, you know, OFS companies, they were like, no, I just want to be at home because they're already at home. And I mm-hmm. felt like people kind of got into that cycle. So that's really good that y'all tried to at least get together and get the team together and make something out of it. You know, there's a lot going on with ESG. I uh, know it's mm-hmm. like every, it started <laughs> really big. <laughs> yeah. You know, COVID really pushed it forward. What are y'all doing in particular? And is there anything specific to y'all's business that y'all have highlighted where you're like, okay, this is a piece that we need to look at? Is it emissions? Is it like the social, the governance part? Is there anything that, that y'all are, are looking at today, especially when it comes to trying to pull in more investment? Yeah, I think for us, we're rabid about tracking emissions, flaring. And unfortunately, for a lot of the Permian, a lot of the flaring has not been producer-induced. It's been it's been induced by downstream where we, you know, either, it's either mm-hmm. pipeline takeaway mm-hmm. or issues. But we track that rigorously. Every every emission we track and we report to ourselves and we report it elsewhere. And so we've been very, very successful in cutting those emissions down in the last 18 months to around 1% of our total oh, wow. gas production. So, And we produce probably 75, 80 million a day on a normal day of gas. So wow. we've we've cut that way, way down. And we track it rigorously. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting to me is the, the entire ESG movement, while, you know, it's obviously important and investors are focused on it. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the domestic oil and gas business, privates, publics, everybody, this is the cleanest place in the world. I know. You know, and Case talked about it this morning, but this is the cleanest oil and gas operation in the world. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of that, the S and the G for us, you know, Gosh, we've got a great mix. My my number two person at Admiral and was was really ran our operations is a woman, mm-hmm. and she's a very very successful operations engineer. Runs all of our operations, responsible for all of that. We've got we've got we don't even think about the social aspect yes. of it because we focus on safety almost obsessively, and then we've got such a such a a mixed group of people. That, you know, culturally, gender wise, everything. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's just, it's just what we do. I mean, we yeah, just look natural. At, yeah. You don't need quotas. And I don't need to stuff. force works out. a certain person into this position because of that. Yeah. You know, we're just looking for the best person mm-hmm. and we don't care. And yeah. so we, we don't focus that much on it, but it just kind of happens naturally. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way you should, in my opinion. It, it, I agree. Yeah. And so, you know, I understand not everybody necessarily is fortunate enough to be in that position. But it's it's a whole lot more fun when you're not forced to do things. Mm-hmm. You just do things because of the right person for the right job. And so, you know, 
to me, it's ESG is ESG, and we can all talk about it and pat each other on the back. But it's just something we do. And it's I li- your cult- it's mm-hmm. at your culture. Yeah, it's, it's at our your culture. Yeah, it's core. always has been, yeah. and for fifteen plus years when we were mm-hmm. at Alliance and, and when we were at Admiral. And the, the other thing is, it just you know, I live in Midland, Texas, right in the middle of the biggest oil field in the world. Yeah. I drink the water. I breathe the air. <laughs> I, have, I have 11 grandchildren that live in Midland, Texas. Yeah. They drink the water. They breathe the air. I am not interested in yeah. in environmental issues. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we're good stewards of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's different when, you know, you see all these pollutions of, you know, big CEOs, multi-billion dollar corporations that are like destroying a part of China or destroying a part of Indonesia. But, you know, they're in L.A. living their good life. But compared to you, you're right. You live. I live. Yeah. A, yeah, yeah. There's probably a rig right outside your house for all. Oh, there's know. several. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My so. friends at Diamondback are driven, drilling under my house right <laughs> yeah. now. So. Yeah. You're like really close. So I like that because it puts into perspective of. Yeah. I live where I work. It's not that bad, people, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? Well, to be very blunt about it, it's almost insulting yeah. mm-hmm. to to have somebody try to tell me to mandate what are just good habits that we practice anyway. Yeah. But and it makes the make outside world – Yeah, well, yeah, and it makes the outside world doesn't understand what we've already done think that we never even thought about this, that we're right. just a male-dominated industry that also has – just a good old boy. We don't we, we don't know what HSE is, and we've never tracked you know a spill on location, which is right. completely polar opposite of who we are. Yeah. Which is another big reason, as we were telling you earlier, why we started the podcast because we wanted people to be able to hear the amazing stories like yourself of how great the industry is and all the amazing things that we've done. Yeah. There was a past interview you did where you said a lot of us in the industry have overlooked the fact that we are not in oil and gas business, but we're in a money business. Can you expand and kind of on that? quote in what you meant? Yeah, I think for that particular quote, I think I made it Doug a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. And, you know, I think what I was referring to is, you know, you can get so, at that time, we were very focused on production and growth mm-hmm. and everything else, but but were we delivering returns? That's been the focus of our business, whether it was at Reliance or at, at any business I've run in the past or this one, is are we delivering profits and we're delivering you know, to to our shareholders and our mm-hmm. stakeholders, what were there? For, they didn't invest in us yeah. to make oil and gas. They got they invested in us to make money. Exactly. Yeah. And so, as long as we remember that as stewards of that, then you know, you you think differently, you operate differently, you really you really pay tons, and everybody does. But I think when you think that way, twenty four seven, you deliver you know lower costs and try mm-hmm. to look at every. I mean, I, I can tell you this: these. Poor times like we came through last year are tremendously powerful and valuable to us because they refocus that effort on everything we're doing. And we've done tons of things on our marketing side, on our operating cost side over the last year and a half that have driven down our expense mm-hmm. lines mm-hmm. tremendously. And then as we've – because we had to, because your top line, your yeah. revenue wasn't good. Yeah. But those hang on. Those last. Mm-hmm. Long into the future – even after your top line starts going up. So your real bottom line has, is benefits from that. I think that's kind of what I was driving at. Mm-hmm. But as important as that is, I mean, I think as I've evolved over the last two or three years and there's been more and more scrutiny and negative on, you know, climate change and things like that, it's caused me to realize that, you know, we what we really are in is we are in the poverty-fighting business mm-hmm. because by creating energy mm-hmm. – we are empowering, the, we're lifting the world out of mm-hmm. poverty. 
and there's still a huge 40% of the world does not have access to abundant energy. Mm -hmm. And that's a big challenge. It's really awesome that you're actually talking about this because we just did a pre-interview with a guy that's going to come on from Endeavor. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what he said is that we are in the business of trying to get other generate, not generations, sorry, other nations and other areas that don't have energy, energy. There's not every, people do not get to live like how we get to live over here. And I think that's really lost in the thought of all this. I don't know. I call it like unicorn energy where you just like plug your car in and like, you don't even think about where that energy is coming from. You know, that's not, that's not what the other rest of the world is like. So no, and and they're, they're having all kinds of health issues because they're, they're typically burning biofuels, wood, dung, Mm -hmm. and those things. I mean, the, the health right. And so, of these third world countries yeah. because of those things you're having to use to to cook and stay warm are causing all kinds of health issues that you know burning natural gas those type of things are just if the rest of the world had that we would see a standard of living not only rise but a standard of health mm-hmm. access to health care all kinds of things and so it's it is quite frustrating when you see a demonization of really the answer to the world's poverty problems being demonized by people who, quite frankly, I'm not sure most of them even understand that. Mm-hmm. But certainly there's leadership in all those groups that that's just a, there's a different agenda. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. So quick question on when you left Reliance Energy after 10 years, how was that transition? And then you went straight to where you are today. Was it a startup? Did you have it in mind? You picked a few people and you were going to leave Reliance to start your own kind of small operating business and you were going to kind of go work for yourself again and put yourself CEO. How was that also in terms of raising money and going to New York? And was that a very difficult time? How long did it take from leaving Reliance to, you know, having your LLC and having your first few employees? Well, I I actually didn't necessarily want to leave Reliance. I mean, we'd had a great run and the main principal, Gary, was kind of wanting to step back and really take some time and, and figure out what he wanted to do. And he, he was a very, very wealthy man at that point. Mm-hmm. And so he had the world in front of him. And I looked around, and we had built a team of almost 100 people mm-hmm. at that point in time. There were some ancillary businesses and a midstream business, an OFS business. And so we had some of those were going to hang on. But I had a core of what had become some of my best friends. Michelle, who was mm-hmm. our ops VP and our CFO, one of the guys that headed up all our engineering, who actually was my son. We just looked at each other and said, I don't want to hang this up. They looked at me yeah. and I was, you know, I was in a position to where I really didn't need to do anything else. I was very blessed in that. But my wife will tell you that she loves me, but not for lunch. Yeah. And, uh, she needs you to go to work. She yeah. said, I don't need you hanging around. And, and during, during COVID, that even got proven even more. After yeah. about three weeks, she's like, you need to go someplace. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care if you get COVID, you need to get out yeah. of here. Because I'm going to kill you otherwise. Yeah. But, yeah, it was probably the biggest mistake I made is during that period is we just plunged right into starting something new. And part of the reason was because we had, you know, those other guys kind of needed to move into something that mm-hmm. would you know, create income for their family, say. And so we just, I should have taken a couple of months and just rested, and mm-hmm. I didn't do it. And about, that persistency that you said, get up every morning yeah, and I just, just, we, we just do it right into it. Was on yeah. next. And it was exciting to think about starting something new, and we, you know, we had some ideas of what we wanted to do. So we, we basically, yeah, by late December, that was in October, we closed on the Concho deal, and then by late December, we had really launched into 
develop an admiral. Mm. And we were excited about that. So we started, you know, it was not difficult necessarily, I don't think. And part of the reason it was a little simpler at that time is because private equity money was yearning for mm-hmm. teams. Oh, yeah. We had just come out of a multi-billion dollar success story. So it was pretty easy to get an audience. Mm-hmm. And so we took several months to really find the partners we wanted and the equity back and we wanted. We had opportunities with a lot of really great private equity firms. And quite frankly, it's a very difficult choice. Mm-hmm. Now, that's changed four years later to oh, where, yeah. you yeah. know, there's... Got to beg now. Yes, yeah, it's a lot harder. <laughs> you really do. It's yeah. very difficult now. And so we were, timing was, we were fortunate. So, but it was a difficult, raising the money was a lot easier than actually raising the assets okay. to go pursue. Mm-hmm. It was very competitive. It's probably not the best time to be buying, but we spent over a year looking at over a hundred deals mm. to try to, wow. you know, and, you know, we would call a lot of them, but, you know, we just kept getting told no a lot. It was just a, you know, it was a long, arduous process, but, mm-hmm. you know, we had good partners at that time. Our private equity guys were patient. So it, it turned out good. But it was a, it was an interesting transition time. You know, I remember one of the guys who ended up being our partner was the head of one of the private equity firms in New York, a very thoughtful guy. And I remember him asking me in a one-on-one conversation. He asked me, if, and I thought this was one of the most interesting questions I'd ever read. He said, he said, I know you've been successful. I know you've run big organizations. You've been really successful. But are you ready to be a CEO? That was your first time being CEO. Well, I had run small businesses, my own little investments and things like that. But, yes, that's right. And it wasn't an ego thing for me, but I remember thinking, well, I guess, you know, I was kind of – and I I said, yeah, I think so. And he goes, well, you know, that's a very lonely job because you can't really tell everybody in your organization everything that's going on sometimes. Mm -hmm. You can't really divulge everything. And so – there's days, and you've got to, you ultimately have to make a decision. And you can get input, but ultimately you're the guy that has to make a lot you of decisions. You sign off. Yeah. 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 And so, probably naively, I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, the longer, you know, we've done this now four and a half years, it's, he was right. He was right. I was probably as prepared as I probably could have been at that mm-hmm. time, but he was right. It was a tough job, and it still is a tough job. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's... Especially through the last year. Yeah, yeah especially through the last year. during COVID and the biggest downturn that we've ever seen. Yeah, kind of. it's... Uh, I've it's learned great. a lot. I've learned a lot. <laughs> so lastly, what I'd like to ask you is looking back, especially since you just made that comment about, you know, becoming CEO and the struggles that came with that, that maybe at the time you were, you know, completely aware, you know, is there anything that you would have changed or that if like what you have learned that maybe advice you could give to somebody else who might be in a position like yourself when you took on that CEO role? Wow. That's a um, preloaded question. <laughs> yeah, and there's probably a hundred answers to that. I'm trying to think of one that's probably the most appropriate. You know, if there's anything I'd do differently, I'm not sure there's much I'd have done differently. I think I look back, you know, you know how you look back almost sometimes daily and you look at the mistakes you made that day and maybe a personal contact with an employee or something you said. And, and I'm notorious about saying things that sometimes aren't quite the right thing to say at the right time. And and if my guys were in here with you, they'd laugh and say, Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Their, their standard deal is he'll never be a public CEO. So, (laughs) you know, I, I don't know if there's a whole lot I'd change differently. You know, you just get up every day, try to do the best you can and you'll live with your mistakes. Mm -hmm. 
and you try to learn from them. And there's probably so many mistakes I've learned from that I, you know, hopefully I don't repeat those too many times. Mm-hmm. But and they make so, you who you are and they, they make do. you a better person anyways at the end of the day since you're learning from them. And I will tell you this, that, you know, 30-something years, almost 40 years in the oil and gas business, will t- if it doesn't teach you anything, it'll teach you humility. Yeah. Because there, you can think you're doing great, mm-hmm. you're 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 kicking the world's tail, and maybe you get a big check, maybe you don't, but you're doing really good. And then the next day, you know, something happens that will humble you. But that's life, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's in this this business or whatever, you're going to get humbled, mm-hmm. and you just have to remember that when you're being exalted, the humbling is coming right around the corner. Yeah. So. I love that. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, yes. That's such a good ending. That, that's so that's yeah. something we, I agree. We all get humbled, especially after every downturn. Yep. And always, cause you have no control over it. And just like you said, it's literally just like a ticker on we were doing so good the stock in Q1 market. Of 2020. Like, and then I, I remember we were like rolling and going in the next month. You're like, holy. Oh, it was like slamming your face yeah. into a wall. Yeah. yeah. We were having such a good quarter. Oh, like, I know. Yeah, uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> Furlough, pay cut, none of this. Like, you know, it's like everything, like all these companies in the matter of, of weeks. weeks yeah. So yep. you're, I mean, you're spot on with that. Well, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time well, thank today. You. Yeah. Thank you for yeah, enjoyed being here with you guys. Yes, good good luck you. on the podcast. And next time I'm coming back, I'm going to interview you guys. I love that. Yes. It, what was the, what do we call it? Flipping the, flipping, flipping the interview. Yes. Flipping the interview. Flipping yeah. the interview. There we go. <laughs> Come back for part two. Yes. All right. Thank you.